0: This is an emergency broadcast transmission. This is not a test. This is an emergency broadcast transmission. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Welcome to the How to Survive the Narcissist Apocalypse podcast. I am Chad the Impaler, and thank you for showing up this week, this episode. I also want to thank everyone who uh, gave us reviews this week, who subscribed this week. I want to thank... Everyone who sent really nice notes to me this week, I got a few of them, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Also, to the person who, uh, I know your name, but I'm not going to say your name now, who was our first recording of a a letter on our website, and uh, it was a very powerful letter. Uh, Once we get enough of them, we'll put an episode out uh, with all of them. So if you want to share a letter you never sent to your narcissist, um. Go to our website, NarcissistApocalypse.com, and there's a recorder on the side of the page, and you can read your letter. It comes to us, and we'll stitch it all together. Also, in two weeks, I'll be recording with a uh, licensed uh, therapist whose specialty is uh, Narcissist Abuse and uh, Divorce. Her name is Sharon I uh, Hopefully, I said your name correctly. I doubt I did, and I apologize. Her website is TalksWithSharon.com. Everyone who sent in questions already, thank you very much. We got a ton of them. Hopefully, we can get through all of them in our time. And if you haven't uh, sent in a letter or, sorry, uh, a, a question that you have uh, on this topic, uh, send them in at chadtheimpaler99 uh, at gmail.com. Also, you can just get, if you go to our Instagram, you can just direct message me through there. And also my email, I'll be fixing it one day. I'm slow to these things, so sorry. And before we also get started uh, on this episode, when we talk about narcissism, uh, it's not just narcissistic personality disorder. It also means to us borderline personality disorder, histr- histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial uh personality disorder and it's all cluster b personalities Uh, we think that is the not the safest thing to do but to the most responsible thing to do because not everyone here uh who we're talking about has been officially diagnosed so uh to to be fair to everyone we're all lumping them uh in together and now uh, one day we'll record that in, in in one recording and i won't ever have to do it again and I'll just play it during this, this kind of part of the podcast. But anyway, now I'm just rambling. This episode, we have Lexi. And I loved this episode because, uh, first of all, her story is uh, a very interesting story. She's one of 11 children, most of them adopted, uh, most of them uh, different races uh, as well. And uh, it's interesting to have a mother who... Uh, is a narcissist who did all these adoptions. It's a really interesting story. And she's on the other side of everything, so that was nice to hear. And we also discussed religion a bit because I am not religious. Uh, She is religious. And when I heard her talking and uh, listened to how it helped her, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And uh, I appreciate everything. And I really do appreciate um, how a religion... Uh, or at least her belief system and her faith, uh, saved her and, uh, you'll hear it. And it's a really, really interesting story because if it wasn't for her faith, she might not be where she is today. And, uh, it's a pretty amazing story. So without further ado, here is my, uh, conversation with Lexi. Thanks for everyone. Uh, I, I always get that wrong. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Did I say that correctly, Lexi?
1: Yes. <laughs> I did.
0: All right. Everyone on the phone with me, uh, we have Lexi, who is a narcissist abuse survivor. She has a very interesting story to tell you. And she was adopted. She's one of, are you seven, one of seven adopted children
1: seven adopted children but my parents had 11 children altogether
0: 11 children altogether uh, like already i'm uh, on the edge of my seat to hear your story and now uh, i am going to just get out of your way and uh, you know the floor is yours and and also thanks for doing this
1: well thank you for having me um i think there needs to be more podcasts like this people's stories need to be heard um, because I remember when I first realized everything that I was going through, it was other people's stories that helped me.
2: So, uh, yeah, I find,
0: I, I, I find, uh, listening to other people's stories as well. You just feel less alone in the world. Uh, and there's always a little bit of tidbit that someone says, uh, that reminds you that you might be doing the exact same thing and they might have come across something in their life that, uh they've, this is how they fixed it. And you might see yourself in other people when they're telling your story and it kind of maybe jogs you to start doing something about your life. Yeah. But anyway, I, I I already interrupted you. like, I'm the worst (laughs) go. Uh,
1: Well, as you said, I was adopted. I was adopted as an infant. Um, I had a narcissistic mother and a codependent father. And my uh, family history, which I kind of have to explain a little bit, my father had two children before marrying my mom. And then they had two children. After that, they periodically started to adopt seven other children from all different ethnicities. So I have um, two sisters that are Korean. I have a brother that's Cuban, a brother that's black. And I am mixed. I am half black and half white. Um I am number 9 out of the 11. And with my mom, she was a holy terror. Um it was very clear very early on who were the favorite children and who were not the favorite children. And that, you know, is also the golden child versus scapegoat, which I didn't know that at the time. We we called it favorite children, not favorite children. And I was fortunate enough to be a not favorite child. Um,
0: you say fortunate enough?
1: Yes. I now think it was a blessing in disguise. Okay. Um, I think because it was easier for me to see through it all because and, I was so ignored.
0: And I assume that the golden child right now... Uh, uh oh well, I'm I'm getting in the way, but I just gonna assume that they they're still locked in and their life probably is not that great.
1: Oh yeah. They're all still there. Yeah. Um I explained to my husband that my life growing up was like a um oh what's the name of it? A a cult.
2: Okay. Yes.
1: Anytime I've seen like a cult documentary, that was my life. And for the longest time that was like the only way I could describe what was happening, but um, because I was the not favorite child, my mom would go to lengths to make sure her life looked picture perfect. You know, we'd all have the cute matching clothes. You know, I was, you know, when we went out in public, especially when I was little, it was dressed to the nines. Everybody had to behave properly. Um, if you put one toe out of mine, you would be chastised as the moment we walked through the door. And it got to the point where by the time I was six, she had to prove to other people that I was a bad child. It wasn't enough for her to just tell me I was bad. She had to make sure everybody around me knew I was also bad. And this went to the extent that when I was in first grade, um, we attended a private Christian school, you know, with all of them, you know, nice, rich Christian people. And my, I remember my teacher, I felt like my teacher didn't like me, but that may have been just something she projected my thoughts to think. If you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but she had a very strict rule about we, none of us were allowed to touch our backpacks. None of us were allowed to put anything into our backpacks. Um, we weren't allowed to go, you know, strict rules at the law zoo. Well, one day um, I got sent to the office because they had found my mother's jewelry in my backpack in a Ziploc bag. And, my mom had stuck it in there and called the school saying it was missing and she thought that I stole it because I'm a bad child and I would do that.
0: How old were you there?
1: I was in first grade.
0: Oh, man, that's crazy.
1: And for years, for years, I believed this, you know, and I had no history of stealing things. I never stole anything after that, you know, and it wasn't until maybe about two years ago where I had this light bulb moment and remembered I wasn't even allowed to touch my backpack. I wasn't even allowed to touch the Ziploc bags in the kitchen. I didn't even know where my mom kept her jewelry. She put that in that bag in my backpack to prove to other people what a horrible child I was. And I believed it. I believed that I was a bad child because of her. And um She would constantly, you know, send me away to my older sibling's house. And my older siblings are, you know, 22 years older than I am. So by the time, you know, I'm 10 years old, they're having, you know, their kids and stuff like that. So I became their free babysitters, and I cleaned their houses for them. And at the time, I thought I was being helpful, and I did not realize how taken advantage I was in those situations and uh, I mean, she, her punishments were never fit the crime. And most of the time I got in trouble, I had no idea what I even did. So I, I also had suffered a lot of neglect and abuse, not just, you know, psychological abuse, Emotional abuse, but there was physical abuse as well. And she pulled us out of school after first grade because my siblings were having issues in school. They, you know, the abuse was starting to show academically. And so she decided that she was going to homeschool us all. And in the state that we live in, The whole school laws are very, very lenient. And so from second grade to ninth grade, I had no education. No schooling was done whatsoever. And that's, you know, about, you know, the age of like a fifth, sixth grader, I started realizing it, you know, because we would still go to church and I would struggle to be able to read along and follow with the activities that they had. Or, you know, I didn't know um, simple American history, you know, and starting to realize that something quite wasn't right. You know, I wasn't like the other kids, and I couldn't, you know. I didn't quite know, but I knew something was wrong. And I um, decided to leave home at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to my sister-in-law about this, and my sister-in-law was, you know, in her forties at the time, and she had always, you know let me know what I could confide in her about all this stuff, and um, she you know always had a listening ear and. was like, oh, I totally understand what you're going through. You know, if you ever want to leave, I'm here to help you, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was great. You know, somebody saw that there was something wrong. Um, And (laughs) hindsight, I realized that, you know, she could have called CPS a whole heck of a lot sooner than she did. But I didn't realize that at the time. And... So when I left home, I went and lived with them and I lived with them for about five years. And at first,
2: I thought it was great. So
0: this is your sister-in-law, like your brother's, your older brother's wife?
1: Yes, my older brother's wife. Okay. So I lived with them and their three children. And um, they have a history with my mom where for 30 years, they've gone in and out of the circle and it's like they're just stuck in this cycle of they'll get away and talk about how abused and hurt they were and how they never want to see her again and then they'll go a while and act like everything's fine and then at some point they start thinking that they need to reconnect and then they get back into the circle and everything's Going great, and then my mom hurts him again, and it's just it, that cycle for thirty years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would think after thirty years, <laughs> you'd be like, "Hmm, maybe we should try something different." But <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work that way. Uh, it, well, is no, he, how it, how old is he? The oldest?
1: He is not the oldest. Is he close? So close. He's one of he is my parents' biological son. So they have a biological daughter together and a biological son together.
0: It's possible, you know, I'm not an expert, but it's possible that you being the youngest or close to being the youngest, you're able to observe a lot more than the the older one who only had his experience, not being able to look upwards that much, and, you know? Uh, you, yeah. you were able to look up. So possibly like you were always wondering this is weird. He might not have had that for a very long
2: time.
1: That's a very good point. Yeah. Cause I tell my husband all the time. I'm right now. I am literally the only one out of all 11 of us that has completely removed myself from the family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, a lot of it was because I looked at my siblings and I saw you know what it was like to be married and deal with all of it, mm-hmm. and I saw what it was like to have kids and deal with all of it, and I didn't want that it's you ex- know-
0: exhausting to you
1: oh my gosh, exhausting so, i
0: sorry I have uh, so, suffered uh, sorry, I just want one question um yes. just just remember that you were about to say, I have suffered, just remember you're about to say that, um. You're 18, and you, and you moved out. What was your education up until that point? Were you able to graduate high school, or was that impossible with what had gone on?
1: At that point, it was impossible. Okay. Um, at 18, I got tested. Um, I had a ninth grade English level and a fifth grade math level. And the only reason I had that high of a reading level was because one of the many ways I escaped was through reading. And I mean, I've read so many books, all oh, oh, the Twilight books. That's embarrassing. Oh, no, I I, I I
0: did a whole entire thing about Twilight on this show. Did you ever listen to that oh, episode?
1: I think I saw I need to go back and read that. So uh, I go listen to it.
0: Um, yeah, I did a whole thing. You you might not like it because uh, I really dissect. And
1: well, I now really. At the time, I was like, twilight, twilight, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that story just sucked. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, oh no, it was, a, has,
0: in my opinion, it was a codependent woman, woman with, who was Bella Swan, and then there was Jacob, who was a, more of a grandiose narcissist, and then there was Edward Cullen, who was more of a covert uh, narcissist.
1: Oh, that's spot on.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: That is spot on. Maybe that's why I like those books. Maybe I identified with it more than I realized at the time. Maybe you're Um, Bella
0: Swan. Maybe that's who you are.
1: I really don't want to be Bella
0: Swan, though. (laughs) Okay. Then I will take that back. (laughs) Um, So my question would be, you know, I've interrupted your story so much now. And I remember before this show started, I said I wasn't going to. Well, I lied. (laughs) Um my my question is do you think your mother uh, did this on purpose to show everyone oh my daughter is not smart or did you she do you think she did this so you would have to rely on her more
2: i
1: think she did it because we'd have to rely on her more um because she straight up lied about our education um we did go to like a small university model type school for homeschoolers and threw us into classes that were our age range but not really our grade level Um, and talked about how she had us signed up for this and that when none of it was true. So I think it was a dependency thing. I think she knew without an education, we would have to rely on her. And for many of my siblings, it worked. So I have um, my, let's see, one, two, three of my siblings are still living with her. They're married and have children, and they all live on in the same little property.
0: How big is
2: this like house?
1: They, they have a fairly big house, but they have a lot of land. And so um, I know at one point my sister was living in the house with her husband. My brother was living with his wife and his two kids in a very small, like, tiny home. And then my other sister um, is living in a trailer home with her husband and her two kids.
0: But on the property.
1: On the property.
0: Okay, this is a big property.
1: It is a big property. Mm-hmm. I told you, it's like a cult.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was not exaggerating. <laughs> um. <laughs>
0: Sorry, uh, we. I also before this podcast, everyone, I told her, like, are uh, we going to be able to joke around on this one? Because it sounded like uh, you were in the mood to joke around. And you said, yes, and we are. So we, we, everything that we yeah. said beforehand, it's, it's coming, it's coming true. Yeah. <laughs> all, all right. So, so uh, I, now uh, my next question is what is your relationship like with, I guess, probably with the siblings that were closest to you in age, I guess that would be more fair because, you know, having a relationship with someone who's 22 year older and older than you, not, you know, is that going to happen? Possibly, probably not. But uh, how about everyone that's Uh, close to you?
2: I,
1: um, I had a sister who is a year apart from me. She's younger than I am. She was a favorite child. And I kind of became her keeper. And she, for the longest time... Anytime we would go out in public or have to interact with children our age, got severe social anxiety, and I had to talk through her. Um, I had two older brothers who were a couple years older than I was, and they were um, very abusive to me as children. They um, would tease me, pick on me, and it was encouraged by my mom. Um, I also had a older sister who is also a narcissist and is another holy terror (laughs) um, who acted as if she was the third parent in the house. And um, anytime I tried to, you know, talk to her or, like, tell her things that were going on with me because she was my older sister and I looked up to her and blah, blah, blah. She would turn around and use it against me. Um, And then I had a younger brother who was about three years younger than I was. He had a hard time because everybody was kind of paired up. And in every pair, there was a good child and a bad child. And it was like the closest in age you were paired with. Mm-hmm. So, um, my sister, who I said was my sister's keeper, she was the good child. I was the bad child in the pair. But he was different. He was kind of both. And he had a hard time connecting with anybody, anybody. So it, his relationship with me was really hard. And especially after I moved out, you know, the smear campaign happened and he can't even look at me, you know? So it sucks. Um, but you, you do lose something when you leave, but you gain so much more. And I'm trying to be encouraging because this part of the story really sucks. I mean, you lose all those relationships. And I mean, you grew up with these people, you all went through the same hell together and now I don't speak to any of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So
0: that, so, I yeah. mean, that's just the sheer amount of people. I mean, it's, it's very sad, uh, yeah. For anyone in, in these situations. And it's very difficult for you to go through, um, do you have any hope that, uh, one of your siblings who at least maybe might've been the bad sibling as well, I would assume, um, might see the light one day and like come knocking at your door and you could be able to sit down with them and hash things out. Is that something you think about or, um,
1: i or- about that and i've always been kind of on the mindset of being open to that but i always am kind of weary because of my mom would use them as uh oh my gosh what's the term like, for a, it? like a
0: triangulation um, partner
1: yeah or you know flying monkey which yeah. she's done okay. that yeah for so uh, it's one of those of course, I want to help them, but at the same time, I also have to protect my boundaries yeah. and make sure something legitimate.
0: Because your, your youngest brother, um, him being the scapegoat and the golden child, it must be very confusing for him. He might not even know who he is as a human being
1: at all. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it... It absolutely breaks my heart for him because with me, at least I got treated badly, and eventually it got to the point where, well, if I'm not going to have a life here, why am I here, you know? Whereas with him, he would be completely beaten down and then spoiled, rotten the next moment. Like, I can't imagine what he's going through. I can't even fathom
0: Yeah. He's been trained to, uh, he's been trained that plain and simple. And uh, yeah, like that's a very sad life uh, to live. And, uh, I assume he like every, do you know of everyone in your family, do they have depression problems or like, or at least the children? Like, 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 did you go through, uh, I guess, were you ever medicated for any, uh, mental health issues or anything like that?
1: I was not ever medicated for mental health issues, but I have been treated for mental health issues. Um, I have suffered with anxiety and depression, um, complex PTSD, um, a whole lot of issues. I have chronic highs due to stress. Um, you name it; I have like a whole list of things that I've dealt with: night terrors, um, eating disorders. I the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And I. everybody in my family has dealt with something, if not the same things that I have. I have a sister who um, drinks heavily. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After so, yeah. so
0: goes, addiction like you have 11 members of your fa- 11 children, uh, one with mm-hmm. addiction or, or more?
1: More with addiction.
0: So, uh, so what, have- what percent?
1: Um, let's see.
0: Was that ever a problem for you?
1: Um, yes. I've struggled with several different addictions, food, um, being one of them, definitely comfort eating. Um, I, I've never been addicted to a substance. Okay. That was something that, because my, um, biological parents were... Uh, abuse drugs I have always been very wary of that because I'm genetically predisposed and also as a child my mom would hold that over my head that I was a drug baby and I had all these issues because I was a drug baby and so that uh, strong willed person in me is like I'm never doing drugs so um, it ended up being a good thing but it does not detract from the things I have struggled with. So, but I do have a brother who has um, abused alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a brother who is addicted to sex. I have a sister who, you know, is addicted to wine and drinks her, you know, evenings away after she puts her kids to bed, you know. And I'm sure there's even more stuff that I don't even know because nobody talks about anything. Mm-hmm. This is just stuff that I've seen you know, first hand. So.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. It's like if, if there was 11 of them, I would, I would like, in my mind, it's like at least half of them have to have some sort of addiction problems.
1: Oh yeah. At least half. I like was trying to think in my head. I think I know for sure. Five.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not
1: including
2: eight. So.
0: Yeah. Like, th- like uh, this, uh, having, being in a family like this with, two siblings, three siblings would be difficult enough, but you throw in so many over such a long period of time, uh, the amount of different relationships and problems that can ensue, especially with, uh, parents, uh, at least, you know, with one of them being a codependent and one of them being a, a narcissistic parent, um, it just, I mean, it's just a rest, and then you throw in the adoption part to give an other level of maybe children's insecurity possibly popping up to to give exactly. that extra level. Um, you know, when I t- when you think of of your life, do you and you you saw the movie Mother, Mommy Dearest? Yes. Um, so, if anyone listening who's not seen the movie Mommy Dearest, it's based upon the biography of. Joan Crawford, who was a big movie star in the nineteen like forties and 50s, uh, maybe even the 30s, but 40s and 50s, I know for sure. And her daughter wrote this thing, uh, this uh, biography, and she pretty much accused her mom of uh, adopting her and her other uh, sibling because her, uh, st- her career was waning. She needed a boost of some sort, and she thought that adopting children would look great to the public. So it would give her this support behind her. So people would see her movies again and it, and it worked, but she, the movie was made of it and she was a terrible, terrible, terrible human being, uh, for doing that. But just how she treated, uh, her children. Did you experience the exact same, uh, type of experience? Like when, when you think of your mom and why she adopted you uh, being the way she was Uh, why did, in your opinion, why did that happen? Why did she do it?
1: I definitely think she did it for attention. Um, She was a part of a huge evangelical group um, that supported adoption. And it started with, you know, people from the church would go to the airport and greet the families that were bringing these babies from Korea and, You know, it was all about those families. You know, that's what it was supposed to be. You know, these families had, you know, sacrificed so much to bring this child to America, to give them a better life, blah, blah, blah. And she saw that, and I believe that she wanted that same attention. And she became friends with other families who adopted large amounts of children um, to create this facade of her being this good, holy person. I had giant air quotes on that. Um, And it, you know, she had in the past been the pageant mom, the ice skating mom, you know, the stage mom. And with every child, you know, I, as a mom of two, two is exhausting. I can't imagine eleven. I have, you know, I love throwing birthday parties for my kids, but it's exhausting. And there's things that I did for my first child that I don't have the energy to do for my second child. And that's just reality. But, I mean, this woman would go, you know, every time that there was a child would throw herself this gigantious party to let everybody know that she's adopted a child. And she has 11 kids. Who has that kind of energy? Like, I I don't understand. Like, it was all for attention, and um, they she had to have the big giant house, the big giant family. We um, grew up. My sister, my much older sister, went into theater, um, and started trying to get, like, television gigs and stuff like that. And so my mom would try to get all of us to do television gigs because one of us had to be famous. Because at a point, it wasn't just enough to adopt us. We also had to become stars. And I have a brother who's uh, one of the adopted, who's a big performer, who had gone around to churches in the area, performed, worked for a giant church in their children's ministry, um, primarily dancing, performing, all sorts of stuff. And she, like, extended herself, like, had to show off herself through the favorite children. Mm -hmm. Through them, she had to show how awesome she was and how great she was. But then with the children who were not the favorite, we were like the bad parts of her that she had to demonize and let everybody else know that they're horrible. And that's, you know, I think it was her way of trying to like to distinguish the good parts of her versus the bad parts of her. You know, she had that very simplistic type of thinking of good and bad and, you know. But I could go on a whole tangent on that.
0: No problem. Continue. Well, I I like tangents. What? I like tangents. Just you can keep on going.
1: All right. Well, when I moved out of my mom's house, I, you know, of course, had a lot of issues. You know, I was uneducated. I was an emotional train wreck. I, you know, were still exhibiting all these very unhealthy coping mechanisms, you know, because i just gotten pulled out of a very abusive situation. And, you know, my sister-in-law took me years to figure this out, but she was also a narcissist, but it looked completely different. You know, she, um, I guess, was the more... more covert narcissist. She was very she very much cared about what other people thought of her. Um was very well regarded in the church, but she had to be, you know, the hero. She had to be the one to save everybody. And she had like a track record of like bringing people home to save them whether it was like her family members that were suffering from addiction. Um she took my older brother in at one point Um, she took an uncle in who was a drug dealer into her home. Um, and nobody left that home any better. And I wish I would have saw this beforehand, but I really thought that, you know, because she was extending her hand out to me that she really was wanting to help me and, as I started living with her, she had, you know, very strict religious type of rules. And I just have to throw this out there. I I am a Christian. I do believe um, in God. And this is not to say that, you know, Christianity is wrong. However, there are legalistic people. And that was the kind of person I was dealing with, was a very legalistic person who was not you know, speaking out of truth, but speaking out of themselves and would use scripture to get what they wanted instead of to get truth into their lives. If, you know, I have to throw that out there because I don't can, want anybody to be
0: misled. Can, okay, okay. Can you explain that? I'm, I'm, I'm not a man of faith. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more to me? So she'll bring you in, and she'll quote. She was more. It was she just not trying to convert you, but like for you to lead more of a uh, a God fearing life,
1: a, a holier life,
0: a holier. Life. So Wait. that so that's why she wanted to bring you in to make you holier in in your mind.
1: Yes. Okay. And you know, as somebody of faith, the way that she did it was not. Not right. You know, it is something, um, you know, whether you believe in God or, you know, spiritualism or anything, it's a journey. It's not something that you follow all these rules and you're instantaneously this good person. It's a journey. It, It takes a journey to get there. And I mean, anybody who is, you know, even going through therapy, you realize that it's a journey. You know, you don't just walk into a therapist's office and poof, you're healed. If it was that case, everybody would be going. Um, but yeah, it it was. I was required to uphold these standards to make everything look good, and it um, got to the point where she wanted me to go to counseling. And by counseling, she didn't um, want me to go to the church. She wanted me to go to a group of church ladies who, um, one, were not qualified to deal with what I was dealing with, um, had no idea what was actually going on, and then she wouldn't just take me there. She stayed there, and her way of like letting me know that that was okay, because I had no idea, she said that... She wanted to make sure that I was being understood, so she stayed there through every counseling session, and what she was really doing was making sure I was only going to tell them information about my mom and nothing about her. Like she was fine with me being like open and honest about what was happening with my mom, but she wanted to make sure that she didn't look bad in those meetings
0: did you and, did you suspect it, like uh were you feeling ill towards or not ill but like were you feeling any uh uh i guess hatred or anything like that towards her at that point uh, or was that just I kind of, out of really- or or that kind of out of the blue or was she just being very? Uh, premature with her uh, fear. She
1: was being very premature, very premature. I did not fear her. I was like, at that point when she said, you know, I, I just want to make sure you're understood. My thinking was, oh, that's good. You know, cause you know, I might not be understood because I was in, i lived in this soup of confusion and thinking that I was the problem. That I couldn't communicate right. And, So that's why I need to go to this so that I can get help. And, um, it, it wasn't, it was just to really reinforce what she wanted out of me.
0: So, so at this point you're now living with her. Uh, and how long does it take you to figure out, uh, that this person does not have my best interest at heart? And after you realize that, uh, now you've had two figures in your life who are, uh, authority figures that are supposed to have your best interest who you cannot trust. What happens with your brain after that?
1: It took me five, almost six years to realize that it wasn't until I moved out of their house, which, They forced me to move out of their house um, because they were ready to get back into the good graces of my mom, and I couldn't be there because I was the black sheep at that point. And they made up, you know, all these reasons that I haven't dealt with my issues, and I have all these issues, so I need to move out, which wasn't the truth. I was dealing with my issues to the best that I could without any actual help, and it was their excuse. but. It, it took me a while to see it. It wasn't until my husband said something. Actually, um, we—I had mentioned something that had happened while I lived with them, and I then told him about how before I moved out, my sister-in-law, and my brother, sat me down and told me that I could not tell anybody the bad things that were happening in their house. And because I was still under all this confusion, for some reason it made sense. Like, oh, of course, like, you don't talk bad about family. Like, I wouldn't talk bad about family. Even though they totally were in the wrong, I totally agreed to it. And I had mentioned this to him in passing, and he just kind of stopped and was like, wait they told you what? And I like repeat it to him. And he's like, see, that's not normal. And then I started to kind of pay attention to our relationship. And after I moved out, I would try to invite them over, you know, for dinner or just to come see where I was living. I had moved five different times. they didn't come and see where I lived. Not once. Um, and they now blame that on the fact that I'm married, which makes zero sense. But
0: so, that, I, one question before you continue. Yes. So you uh, lived with them for what? Six years? Five years. Five years. And when you left and moved out, did you move in with your current husband?
1: No, I lived by myself.
0: Okay, That's so you, so you, so, so, clarify that. so you lived uh, by yourself, and you're on your own, and you're on your own for how long?
1: Um I was on my own for four years after that. Okay, so that, and,
0: So what happened yeah. with them and your mom in that time, and where was your mind at at that point?
1: My uh, I didn't know it at the time, but after I moved out, they started you know, going to family events going to concerts with my mom, like, doing all these things with her, um, and they wouldn't tell me about it. Um, and I wouldn't find out till way after the fact, and they'd, like, slip it in, almost as, like, a jab to hurt me, to let me know that I was out of the circle, which was just craziness. And, um, I mean, i I knew that my mom, my relationship with my mom was bad, and I, like... Had tried to make amends, and every time I talked to her, she would just hurt me again, and I'd pull myself away. And uh, my sister in law would try and like fish information from me. And at first, I thought she was just, you know. Seeing how I was, but it never was like a genuine "Hey, how are you doing? What's going on with your life?" No, it'd be like specific information that she'd want from me, and then would never follow up on it. And then later on, I'd find out that she was telling my mom about it and was like trying to get me to get back with my mom, even though she was the one who encouraged me to leave my mom's house so that she could be my savior, and. Like I'm telling you crazy
2: stuff. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and so after my husband and I got engaged, I started to really, really pay attention to what was going on because that just didn't fit well with me. And especially I like after the first time that she told me she was telling my mom all this stuff, I told her I was like, Hey, I don't want you telling mom anything. Like, I don't want a relationship with her. I have no desire for that. I don't want her to know any of my information. She's like, oh, okay, you know, I understand that. That's a good point. Turned around and kept doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And kept doing it up until I had my second child, you know. Um, She... There was a lot of little things, but the some of the big things that like were giant red flags was when I got married, and I think it was because it wasn't about her. Um, we, I decided to get married in the church that we were both going to, and which made her really happy and everything, and um, but she wanted to be more involved with the wedding planning which kind of was a surprise to me because she'd always talk about how stressful her wedding was and that she never wanted to do it again and blah, blah, blah. And so I, um, you know, gave her a little bit of stuff to do, and we had a pretty low-key wedding. Like, I am very – I'm a pretty decisive person. I was never that bride that was like, I'm so stressed out. You know, that just was not me. Um, So, like, I asked to make my cake, you know, I – Asked her to go dress shopping with me. Um, she got upset because I didn't find a dress when I was with her. And then I went dress shopping with my best friend and found my dress there. Like she was really upset that I, she wasn't there to find my dress.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, but then the big thing is like, we just kept having all this like craziness communication and she had gotten upset because I didn't, you know, ask my nephews to do anything. And my nephews were, you know, at this time, you know, 13, 14 years old, they're boys. They don't care about a wedding. I knew that they didn't want to be a part of the wedding. And so I didn't ask them to usher or to do anything like that. Cause I knew them. I knew that, that that was not what they wanted, but she got upset that I didn't do that. And So, but she's texting me back and forth, like, she's really upset and everything. And so I texted her, I was like, hey, I feel like we're having a bunch of miscommunication. I really feel like, you know, me and my husband and you and your husband should all sit down and we should all just talk about this. And my goal in that was that, you know, we're family and, you know, my boyfriend's about to become family and that's my brother. I mean, we should be able to talk about this. You know, and her response was, you don't need to put me in my place. And I can't believe that you would think that uh, you would think so little of us to not include us and all this stuff. And it just completely blew up. But all I wanted to do was sit down and have a conversation. And so after that, a week later, she texted me and says that she has set up a meeting for us with – a um, one of the ladies who she had gotten to counsel me to sort everything out. And the gist of that meeting was the church lady and my sister-in-law ganging up on me and making me feel as if I need to treat my sister-in-law as if she was the mother of the bride. Which was completely crazy because all the time I lived with my sister-in-law, she would tell me, oh, I'm not your mom. You know, you, you can handle this on your own. I'm not your mom. But then when it became, you know, privileges of being the mom, she wanted all the privilege. Mm-hmm. All the privilege of being the mom but not actually wanting to be the mom. It, it just sent my head into a tailspin. And so I started to kind of separate myself from her and not tell her as much. And I started realizing that anything I tell her, she was going to turn around and tell my mom. Mm-hmm. Like, And my mom on my wedding day, instead of coming to my wedding, um, decided to throw a birthday party for my sister and invited all of my siblings and made them choose between my wedding Ugh. or my sister's birthday. What, like, a, what a
0: piece of work your mom is. I'll tell you that right now. I,
1: for real for real um
2: so uh, honestly i
0: am giving you a giant virtual hug right now because it, you deserve one i mean that you're, you're that just who does like just a terrible person does something like that
1: but, yes absolutely and i mean it was all about herself and it was you know my mom i was smart enough at that point that i did not ask her to do anything i just invited her to the wedding and I had a feeling she wasn't going to come, but she exceeded my expectations with that one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And honestly, I like, wouldn't have it, even uh, known uh, about. Uh, I,
0: I, sorry, I can't get over this. Just how petty. Um, just to do something like that on your daughter's biggest day of the year, to then try and get her siblings to it. Just, uh, I'm just. I, I, it just, it's just, it disgusts me, and I'm sorry I, I interrupted, but I had to verbalize that.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah,
2: it's <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> there's a reason I don't talk to my mother. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's. Um, and then like she, my brother who I lived with and my sister in law did come to my wedding, but they got severely chastised for it. And, um, they almost, it was really weird cause they almost wore that like a badge of honor. Like I, I can't quite figure out what the thought process was there, but, you know, I would like to say that a normal person would, you know, decide not to tell the bride that, that was happening until after the wedding. Because that's just respect, right? Like, isn't that what normal people do? Because, I mean, there was other, you know, drama that happened that's, you know, between friends and stuff. And I didn't find out till way after my wedding because, you know, my friends, who are rational thinking human beings, um, chose not to tell me on the day of my wedding because I didn't need that. No, my brother, I got, I got conned into asking him to walk me down the aisle which I was prepared to walk myself down the aisle. Like I said, I'm a very decisive person, but I, you know, I was like, okay, I can ask Roger or whatever. And so I um, asked him to walk me down the aisle and literally right before I'm walking down, he spills to me all this stuff that's happening with my mom. Right. As I'm about to, you know,
0: As you're walking down the aisle.
1: As I'm walking down the aisle. And like why? Why did you choose now? Like that's something you could have texted me a week like a week later.
0: <laughs> but, if you were um, to see if you were to see me right now, my jaw is just wide open at just how terrible just it's your wedding day.
1: Yeah. And I mean I really think that they were like the flying monkeys sent to ruin that wedding.
2: Ugh.
1: They it was all about them, uh, or all about my mom, and got mad at me when I tried to make it about myself. You know, as I should. So was that <laughs> it? it? Was, my
0: was after the wedding? Was that it for you? They were done.
1: Um, no, because I was stupid enough to think that you know maybe they were just hurt and you know we're really in a weak spot. What did it in for me was after I had gotten married, I kept trying to have a relationship with them and they kept blowing me off for stupid things. Like I had set up a lunch date with my sister-in-law and she at last, like we had it scheduled two weeks in advance. Mm Mm-hmm. She canceled on me because she needed to, quote, work out with her neighbor.
0: So how, and how hurtful, if you can put somehow into words, this period is for you?
1: If I could put it into
0: words. Because, I mean, these, it's supposed to be your family. You're trying your best you're doing your best to have a relationship. You want to be part of this family. You're still trying. Um, yeah. And they're not take like, like what is, do you have like a feeling of loss or Um. what is the exact, if you can pick a, a feeling word, what would it be that you were feeling in, the, in this, at this time? I guess extreme
1: loneliness because mm. that was, That was, you know, when I lived with my mom, I tried so hard to be the good kid. I tried so hard to make things work, and I would just always get pushed aside. Always, always, always. No matter how many people were in that house, I felt extremely lonely. And when those things would happen, it would just bring up that feeling again. And, you know, you said it quite accurately, I tried so hard to make it work, and it was, you know, to the point where I was doing all the work for our relationship, and, you know, thank the Lord for my husband because he had to kind of point that out to me that how much I was giving in and wasn't giving back, and I slowly, you know, started to weed them out of my life. After that, after, you know, the multiple trying to make things work, I finally just realized that I wasn't a priority. Oh, no, I remember the event. So it was my husband and my therapist. I encourage everybody to find a good therapist because there are some out there that do understand narcissistic abuse and My therapist has been wonderful, and I am a person who loves Jesus and my therapist. You need both. (laughs) Um, She, at the time, I did not really want to hear it, but, like, I'm just trying to explain this crazy situation to her. And she just simply told me, she's like, you know, if you want to pursue this relationship, let's figure out a way to communicate with her. But I want you to really first think about if you want this relationship, if you want this, you know, to pursue this, I want you to write a list of reasons why it is worth keeping this relationship. And so I really thought about it. And during that same time, um, I had to give a little bit of a history. Her grandparents have known me since I was a little girl.
0: Whose grandparents? They, your your therapist's grandparents?
1: My My sister-in-law's grandparents. Okay, okay. Yes, um, and they have always treated me like one of their grandchildren, which I didn't really have grandparents growing up. Um, my father's parents had passed by the time I came around, and my mother's parents—her dad wasn't in the picture, and her mom—I my only memories of her was in the hospital, you know, because she was severely ill. So I really didn't have grandparents growing up. And so they were like pseudo grandparents to me. And they were, they were a bit religious, a little bit more than I wanted them to be, but they were genuinely sweet people and they genuinely cared. And her um, grandfather was in the hospital and I had, not heard about this um, until after a week he had already been in the hospital. Like, everybody else has been notified, and um, I was so close to her family. Like, I went to all the Christmas parties. I, you know, would go over to her grandmother's house, and we'd just have coffee and talk. I mean, I was very close to this family. Nobody called me, and I, when I found out I called um, Grandmama, and I told her, I was like, Grandmama, I am so sorry. I had no idea about Granddaddy. Is he okay? Blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, I I am so sorry that I didn't call you. I've been so busy up here. I'm like, I just assumed he, uh, my your sister-in-law was going to tell you. I'm trying so hard not to use names here.
2: Yeah, it's um,
1: okay. <laughs> um, I thought, you know, your sister-in-law was going to tell you, and I was like, she hasn't I'm surprised that she hasn't told me either and I um you know she told me that you know they were trying all these treatments and blah 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 and you know they were hoping that something would happen I was like okay great you know I'll you know see if I can come up there and see him and blah 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 and then um I find out through Facebook, a couple days later, Facebook, from my sister-in-law, that he is being moved to hospice. And that is the moment it did it for me. Mm -hmm. That I was not a priority enough for you to pick up your phone and to text me that this man is in hospice. But yet, you have the ability to let all the rest of the world know like, that that did it in for me, and I, I then realized that I was not a priority mm-hmm. at all, and my feelings were not accounted for, you know, and I understand, you know, grieving her grandfather, yes, I understand, but I feel like, you know, a normal person would communicate with the closest people first before you blast that out all over the internet. And she doesn't have like a track record of just pouring out all of her information on Facebook either. So she's not like one of those people who everybody knows everybody about that person. You know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when it, it hit me. And so I just gray rocked it for as much as I could. And I would go to, you know, Christmas Eve I wouldn't tell her any information about me. Um, she wouldn't ask how I was, and I i don't know why. Like, for years, like, since the moment I got married, she wouldn't ask how I was. So it was kind of easy. Um, but, like, I just wouldn't give her any information. And there was, you know, jabs at me. Um like, I would bring up, you know, a funny memory of something that happened because I was trying to make the moment lighter with, you know, comedy like I always do. And she'd shoot back at me and, like, well, your brother still really heard about that. I'm like, things like hiding presents in the closet and I'd accidentally find them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, things that are funny, you know. <laughs> I jabs at um, anybody who would make a comment to me so like her brother would come to like all the holiday things at their house and her brother said to me "Um, Lexi you were like the nicest person that I know and that was a really sweet compliment and she had to jump in and say yeah I thought her sister was a really nice person too but I learned better
2: Um. like
0: so, so after dealing now, now like, you, you know, your contact with these people has been cut off. Uh, the one thing that I've been thinking this whole entire time has been, how did you find your husband and not find someone terrible to date based upon your history of dealing with these people Was it a miracle that you found your husband who's been so understanding and uh, can see all these things and help you through this?
1: It was an absolute miracle. Now, I will say, there were other guys who tried to date me at the time who I absolutely believe were narcissistic. Um, There was a guy who was so narcissistic that, you know, if my wedding day couldn't be any more crazy, he added to it. He tried to date me Um, would talk to me, text me all night long um, while my husband and I were dating. um, Eventually would like try and make me, you know, feel things for him. Like he said, he was coming, he wasn't going to come to my birthday party um, would say over and over and over to try and get a reaction out of me and then would show up, you know, to see just how I react, like crazy stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And like, on my wedding day, he um, he worked at the church. Had oh,
0: to. God, oh, your yeah. no offense, your wedding stunk. Like
1: <laughs> my wedding was a circus. Like,
0: <laughs> I mean, no there's buts, no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Your wedding day had it was disaster written out. Did you actually have a good day somehow?
1: I had a wonderful
0: day. Okay, Despite at least that happened. I take back the stunk comment then.
1: Yeah. You know what? I married the man of my dreams who is a wonderful guy. My wedding day was wonderful. Okay. And I looked really good too. Um,
0: <laughs> I, can you, I, no I, I, I take back the stunk. I'm happy for you that this happened. Yeah. But there's all these, it could have been, honestly, if you let that stuff get to you more, I, I still don't understand how every, you know, the power of love uh, from your husband trumped everything else, I guess.
1: It really did. And, you know, I think that was a pivotal thing for me that I realized through therapy was, you know, my husband was the first genuine person who loved me for just being me instead of what I could do for him. And that was a huge thing. And at first, like, I thought I was going to run this guy off. I thought, you know, I had somehow manipulated him into marrying me and, you know, we've been together for 12 years now because we met when I was, you know, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. So, and he tells me to this day, you know, if I had not seen how crazy it was, I wouldn't believe it.
0: I don't know his name, when, but I'm going to call him Dave. Dave because we'll, we'll just call him Dave. A big shout out to Dave uh, for being a great guy and for uh, just, I, I mean, showing you what love uh, can be. I mean, your life could have gone on, if you did not meet him uh, or start dating him, yeah. your life could have gone on right now. You might not even be close to where you are right now without someone like that showing you what, a normal loving, uh, relationship could be like.
1: Exactly. And I, I will say his family is absolutely wonderful. I mean, every family has, you know, their own set of drama, but it's like, it's so crazy to me because we, you know, anytime my family went out to eat, you know, somebody, you know, didn't get invited. There was always some sort of, you know, eggshell that everybody was walking on with, you know, this person's drama or that person's drama. And, you know, his family invited us out to eat. And, you know, it's his mom, all his brothers, his grandparents, his aunt and uncle are all there. And everybody enjoyed a nice dinner. And there was no trauma. And it was just wonderful, and it blew my mind. I didn't even know that was possible. Like, I was, like, inside, like, preparing for, like, World War Three to break out and, like, like protect myself, and that's just not what it was. And there there is hope. Oops. There is hope for a normal, wonderful life after narcissistic abuse. So...
2: That is my, uh,
0: encouragement. So how, uh, do you still have that feeling of loneliness here or there, or is that just gone now because this person has, uh, or you've now learned that you, you, you uh, are accepted by people and you are loved by people. Uh, but also you, did that help in accepting yourself? Did you, what, what kind of issues did you have in between?
1: Um, so, it did not completely go away. Okay. It, Without treatment, it reduced um, because I had somebody that I enjoyed being around. I wasn't being manipulated. I wasn't being lied to. I, you know, can genuinely enjoy this person. Um, there was always that nagging voice in the back of my head saying that all my craziness can drive them away, even though we've been together for so long. Um and I would have um, periods of deep depression. You know, I struggled to just shower, you know, struggled to want to get dressed and go out of the house. Um, I would, if I did have to go out of the house, i put on my fake face and pretend like everything was fine and then come back home and, you know, be the slob that is depression. And, you know, You know, I have worked a lot through therapy and I still struggle with it now. Like I still um, am learning that it's okay to be alone, that loneliness doesn't have to attribute to that. And so some of the things that I've done is that I have um, my me nights and I will go and I will listen to a book and go paint pottery, or go sit in a coffee house, drink coffee, and just enjoy myself. So it wasn't something that just went away because I got married. Um, it, you know, has been a process. It, and it's still something that I still struggle with. So that's a very good question.
0: And before we close it down, I have one question about your children. How old are your children?
1: I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and a 13-month-old.
0: And, and do you, I it's you're not at that time yet, but do you worry that maybe uh, some things that, uh, how you were treated maybe tr- may transfer over? You know, because a lot of people say, like, I'm not going to be like my parents, but sometimes when they have children, uh, they start doing things that they might not have done. Is that a worry of yours, or is something you're now very highly aware of of uh, your actions and reactions to things.
1: I am highly aware of my actions and reactions. However, I still do worry about it. Okay. Absolutely. I absolutely, I mean, that is like the terrifying thing to me. And I have had moments where I have just had these moments of realization that, you know, I am a child that was raised by a mentally ill woman. Mm Mm-hmm. And that I am now a mentally ill woman raising children. Like mm-hmm. what? And, you know, the difference is though, is that my mom never sought out help. She never once admitted that there was something wrong and that her thought life was sick. She never admitted it. And because she's a narcissist, she probably won't ever admit it. And, I, I've done, you know, work to get the help. I am not a perfect mother, and I know that. And I know that, you know, there are going to be things that my children will struggle with in life. But I am not just going to give up because I've struggled with mental illness. I'm not going to stop trying to be a good mom and stop being there for my kids because I've struggled with depression or I've struggled with anxiety. And the huge thing that I take from my childhood is that nobody cared or loved me enough to stand up and to do the right thing. I love my children so much that I am going to stand up and do the right thing. I am going to seek help when I see the signs of, you know, Depression coming on or anxiety coming on. um, I am willing to be corrected and to work on myself because that's huge. I'm willing to love my kids, you know, even if somebody else thinks that they're a bad kid. Like, I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. I am willing to do the work and to love my kids regardless. And I think that's the huge difference because my mom was not able to be that person. Mm
0: And I guess before, before we go, what are the things that you've learned that maybe you haven't mentioned, or maybe you want to mention again for everyone out there listening, who is raised in a similar type of environment, uh, especially where they don't feel not that they weren't loved, but just, uh, extreme loneliness and, in, in how the process that you went through, uh, were other things that you, maybe you've not mentioned that, that you did.
1: Yes, um, for me, um, it, it does go back to my Christianity that I truly believe that Jesus loves me. I truly believe that Jesus died on a cross for me. I truly believe that I am treasured, um, and that was really healing for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I I know that I'm not perfect, and... I'm trying to verbalize this in words because it's been it's been a journey of um, self-love as well as allowing others to love me because sometimes for me it was easier to love myself and it was hard to let to allow other people to love me and that that has been healing not only listening to other people, but letting people listen to you. I did go through a whole phase where, you know, cause my story is so crazy that, you know, anytime I'd mention my story, people would get uncomfortable and cringe. And my, my advice is don't give up. Don't give up hope. There are people who want to hear you. They want to hear your story. They want to hear you and you're not alone. You know, that that was the most revolutionary thing. I had a dear friend of mine who um, her children are close to my age. And um, this was my light bulb moment for my mom because uh, I was trying to explain to her, tell my story. And she told me, she goes, I think your mom is a lot like my mom. At the time I was like, no, no, you don't understand. My mom's crazy. Um and she's like, you should just check out this website. And it was com. And without being brave enough to share my story and be willing to get out of that loneliness and be vulnerable and open, that would not have happened. And I would not be where I am now if I wasn't willing to be vulnerable and open with other people, even in my loneliness. So... That was my, my encouragement. Okay. You're
0: loved. Um, you're
1: loved. Sorry? You're loved. The people listening, you're loved. Oh. You're not alone.
0: Uh, well, I wanted to say, you know, I am not a religious person, but listening to you say that and listening to you, uh, you know, you, when you talked about Jesus, you know, it, it was the first time in my mind that where I said to myself, you know, Jesus did save you and he yes. really, really did. And for people who might not be religious, who don't have uh, that in their life, such as me, um, that, that was very, very key. I mean, if you did not have your belief system and your faith uh, also, just like with your husband, you might, you probably would not be, where you are because, you, you know, um, that was a huge, huge thing to have. If you did not have that in your life at all, I mean, like throw like not even think about your husband, you would be very lost.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So and I really, I really do believe in, um, I guess the church way to say it is divine appointments. Um, it's when God puts specific people in specific places at specific times to help you
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I do believe that meeting my husband was one of them um, talking to friends who were also dealing with narcissistic abuse was one of them um, and without those things I wouldn't be who I am today mm-hmm. I honestly wouldn't because I'm not the same little girl that was trapped in my mother's house
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there there's hope there's <laughs> hope there's hope to get out of that. And there's so much more to life than the symptoms that we deal with. There's so much more to life than the abuse that we carry around. And it has been so freeing to be able to say that, you know, that abuse that I've carried, those hurts that I've carried is no longer mine to carry. And that's their responsibility. And... um I know we talked about this before we got on about how uh, if they they didn't want me to talk bad about them, you know they should have been nicer to me. It's very freeing to say that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, Lexi, I've uh, this has been a wonderful conversation with you. I can, I think I could talk yes. with you all, all night, but we're gonna we're gonna you know the, the podcast can only be so long, so we're get, we're going to uh, say goodbye. But before I say goodbye, I just want to say you've lived quite an amazing life, uh, sad, but you've uh, made it through and sound like you're thriving, even though you have your, your moments here and there. Uh, and for everyone listening, you know, just listen to her voice. There's, um, you still have a twinkle in your voice and a strength and a strength in your voice. And it's, uh, really nice to hear. um, And, uh, I, it's been an enlightening conversation for me. It's made me think a lot. And I just really want to thank you for being on the show. And I really appreciate you being here today.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor being on your show. I, I'm loving your podcast. I have been listening to it as I do my morning walks in the morning. And I love hearing from other people who have been through the same crazy circus that you and I have been through. And just knowing that we're not alone.
0: Well, uh, we're not alone. And thank you. And for everyone out there uh, listening, uh, have a great night. And that was the story of Lexi. And it was a great conversation. I love this conversation. Uh, we had uh, a good time in, in, in the sad, you know, when we're talking about sad things. It's hard to have a good time. But uh, we did hear. And it was really nice to hear uh, the vibrancy in her voice and and how far she's uh, come. So I just want to thank Lexi one more time. Also, before we leave you today, uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, uh, subscribe to our show, give us some reviews, Uh, send us some email, Uh, do all that nice stuff. And once again, we're going to be having uh, Shirin uh, uh, Picar um, I said it incorrectly probably again uh, In a couple of weeks uh, on the show So send us your uh, Questions for her She's an expert, a uh, licensed therapist Who's an expert in narcissist abuse and uh, Divorce So I'm sure we've already got a lot of good questions So I'm sure we're going to have a lot more uh, To those people who have uh, Emailed me wanting to be guests On the show uh, w- Keep on sending them in I'll, I'll get back to you as fast as I can uh, we're backed up a little bit on uh, days of how much uh, time I have to do the show Because, you know, sometimes I have other <laughs> other things I have to do And uh, also I'm trying to arrange uh, a trip uh, A little day trip here or there uh, cause it is the summer. So we're just trying to fit everything in and get my schedule together. So if I haven't gotten back to you with the exact date or gotten back to you right away, I'm still trying to organize, uh, certain things, but I will, uh, get there. Cause, uh, you know, I think everyone has the right for their story to be heard. And, uh, this is the place to do it. Plus we want to make other, other shows I'm trying to get, uh, hopefully we'll get another show made with uh melissa sometime uh this summer because everyone loves melissa if melissa is listening hey and (laughs) and that is it so this has been the how to survive the narcissist apocalypse podcast i am chad the impaler and thank you for listening this is an emergency broadcast transmission this is not a test this is an
2: emergency broadcast transmission this is not a test please remain calm